Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the program where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man currently recording this very episode from his undisclosed tax haven in the Cayman Islands, Mr. Ryan Seabold. <laughs> What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? Man, I am so good, but, oh, I'm, nope, hold on a second, though, something seems off here. What? Everything okay? Yeah, Wait, just, just hold on. Alright, alright. Alright, that's much better, yeah, see, I just oh, had to bring a wow. little red to the occasion, yeah, you know. <laughs> it just, it well was, it was looking way too normal here, because we're not just doing any old normal film, we are doing, like I said, one of the most colorful, visually fascinating films ever, let alone in the horror genre, we're looking at Dario Argento's Suspiria. Ryan, hit us up with that description, my tax-evading friend. Absolutely, buddy. <laughs> From 1977, we're talking about Dario Argento's Suspiria, a horror classic in the genre. Google has this described as, Susie, played by Jessica Harper, travels to Germany to attend ballet school. When she arrives late on a stormy night, no one lets her in, and she sees Pat... Another student fleeing from the school. When Pat reaches her apartment, she is murdered. The next day, Susie is admitted to her new school, but has a difficult time settling in. She hears noises and often feels ill. As more people die, man, that's a bummer. Yeah, as more people die, uh, <laughs> Susie uncovers a terrifying secret history of the place. Uh, this was shot by Luciano Tavoli, who previously shot The Passenger for Antonioni with Jack Nicholson. So, uh... Yeah, this is the first part of what is known as the Three Mothers Trilogy, which is followed by 1980's Inferno, and then several years later by The Mother of Tears. Uh, this has music by Goblin. We're going to get into all that. Uh, this is absolutely banana pants crazy. Um, <laughs> I love this movie. Uh, Jason, you and I have seen this before. I think we may have even seen this together at one point, but uh, we are here to deep dive. And always, I have to ask you is, what did you think about this movie, buddy? Ryan, going to be happy to tell you, but first, do want to tell everyone watching, please go ahead, like this video, subscribe to the channel, really helps us out there. As well, if you agree or disagree with any aspect of this review, as we're going through, we would love to hear from you. Go ahead and let us know in the comments below. So yeah, Ryan, I loved this movie, man. Like you said it before, we've both seen this. I think this was like my like seventh or eighth time seeing this film. Got the really awesome 4K transfer that I know you got as well, which is just like an absolutely gorgeous transfer. I've seen this film many times and it's never looked as good as it does on the uh, 4K that's out there right now. So oh, the transfer. <laughs> now, the other thing that's interesting, though, is... This is the first time that I've sort of been able to analyze this film, right? Like we've talked about this sometimes where there's certain films where even if you've seen it a number of times, maybe you haven't really like analyzed it to the degree that we do on this film. And in doing so, it did reveal certain flaws that I never really thought about over the course of the film. Now, it's not really going to be enough to like 
knocked the rating down tremendously from it. But it is one of those things where I kind of have to take a step back and admit like, oh, you know what? Maybe coming into this, I thought this was a pretty damn near perfect film. And now I can say it's not without its flaws. And most of that just has to do with like the story, the structure, some of the creativity with the deaths, things like that, that we've talked about with other horror films, you know. But also on a completely other level, it's incomparable, right? Like when you look at some of the visuals that are being presented with the score from Goblin that is just absolutely insane and just relentless (laughs) in how it like constantly comes at you. This, this combination of sound and image and color and visual and geometry and everything, it combines to make this just completely singular experience. So it's not here to exist in service of its screenplay. If anything, the screenplay is probably here to exist in service of all of these visual and aural elements that we've just discussed. So once again, there are a couple problems and we're going to go ahead and discuss that. But overall, it's a completely idiosyncratic experience. And I just, you know, can't get enough of, you know, I love the colored gels, man. So even if there was nothing else going on, I would be here just for all the colored gels. Yeah. I mean, this, this movie begs the question is style substance. And I believe that it yeah. can be, um, you True. know, Argento is challenging you to answer that question. You know, it's not, You know, look, it's also a late 70s horror film. You know, we uh, don't necessarily this is good. This is an odd film because we would not necessarily have um, the Hills Have Eyes on here or, you know, Halloween on here or, you know, some of these other directors, early horror works. Uh, on here, we watch those movies and we appreciate them. Friday the 13th is full of holes, uh, you know, and and flaws and all of that. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street as well. Uh, so, you know, it's like, wait, so he's in the dreams, but he's not. What's going on with the, you know, sure, the, the, yeah. the dank sewer? You know, he loves the dank. So um, <laughs> this guy loves the dank. He loves the dank. So um, this is, a, I think, um, this gets held to a higher standard because it falls in that genre subset. But it, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, dares to kind of raise up to a higher tier. And um, like you said, gives us something very unique with both the score, the colors that it's offering, uh, the cinematography, and not only color gels, but also camera movement. There's a ton of fun stuff here. Yeah. Um, the performances are crazy. Um, yes. Could it be, you know, uh, obviously you know, elevated to another level by taking itself a little more seriously. Um, we get one major exposition dump. We're going to talk about that. The story's a little loose. Uh, they play a little fast and loose with the story and the plot. But um, but then you got, uh, you know, uh, this is something I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about. Um, Luca Guadagnino's, um, Luca, Guad- Luca Guadagnino's, Guadagnino, Guadagnino, Guadalupe. <laughs> but then you get the uh, the remake that came out, you know, many years later, um, just a few years ago, and it tried to do exactly that. And I have not seen the modern remake of Suspiria or homage to Suspiria. I won't even necessarily call it a remake. But oh, um, by the but way, can have. I just interject and let you know that that film upset me more than any film I've seen in the last right. decade? Yeah, I this is what I'm looking forward to getting into. So so much, dude. Like it right. was offensive go on there were some people that liked it we do not know any of those people nor do we call them (laughs) friends (laughs) i've never seen it um but i am looking forward to getting Uh. your opinion on it because i feel like that 
and from what I've read and what I've heard, that's what they were trying to do is like, let's take the the skeleton of this thing and elevate it by filling in all the holes and adding more plot yeah. and getting into the backstory. And, you know, Tilda Swinton all of a sudden is a, you know, the, the, the psychiatrist is like a World War Two, um, you know, uh, Holocaust survivor and all of these things that all of a sudden, you know, get wildly out of hand, I've heard. So um, I'm anxious to hear your opinions on that. But yeah. This is a late 70s, uh, you know, a horror film and that, you know, dares to elevate itself. I really enjoy it. A surface level, you watch this around Halloween time, you're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. And as we analyze the film, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we've kind of talked about the pie chart of film, right? And it's like, what is your film really about? This film, I think, is like mostly two giant segments of the pie with like <laughs> one tiny segment left for all the other stuff, right? And on the right, one side, you right. would have the visuals and on the one side, you would have the audio, right? Audio largely being score, but there's also some interesting sound effects and stuff going on there. And then, of course, the visuals and Again, to your point, it's not just that, you know, colored lighting that really stands out or even necessarily the practical elements, right? Like some of the wallpaper they have there is like oh, crushed yeah. velvet and paisley and stuff the like that, right? The set design but, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But not, then not only that, but you've also got a really interesting approach to how he's capturing it, you know? Like sure. certain times we see these sort of Jodorowsky wide shots that let the geometry speak for themselves. Other times he's sort of exploring the environment in sort of a 360 degree way that almost reminded me of House a little bit in the way that he explored the environment within that and how he chose to shoot a lot of the house. So there's a lot of there's a lot of going on to the visuals instead of just necessarily, you know, the lighting. But let me ask you what aspect of the visuals jumped out at you the most or stood out as noteworthy to you. I mean, I've I've seen this movie several times before, as we discussed. And so I knew, obviously, about all the colors and stuff. Uh, you know, it's very vibrant. It's a very vibrant film from literally the moment she's in the airport from scene one, she's walking through and there's all of a sudden all these red lights that she's walking through yeah. kind of like, you know, air, bearing caution to her a little bit, almost visually. Um, and then she gets in the cab, more of it. But uh, what stood out to me this time was the camera movement. I didn't realize how much yeah, movement definitely. was in, in the, uh, in the film as well. You know, it would have been very easy to shoot this, you know, uh, like you said, wide shot, close up, wide shot, close up, couple OTS shots moving on. But uh, that camera's moving. It's humming along. And um, yeah. I thought that, um, you know, it did. It, but then also the set design, like you said, um, I, I never really quite paid attention to the set and setting of the whole thing, whether it's, you know, the finale uh, in the hallway and all of that and that big room where, you know, the, the blue orchid and all of uh, that when she's, you know, bearing into the climax, you know, mm -hmm. when she gets in the cab and she's telling the cabbie uh, where she's going, giving the address, she's going to Escher Strasse, uh, which is literally translating to Escher Street, as in, you know, uh, Escher, the artist with all the staircases sure. yeah. and stuff like that. So it's meant to be. Um, you know, very uh, labyrinth-esque, labyrinthine, or I guess you'd say, is that a word? Labyrinthine? Labyrinth-esque? <laughs> uh, labyrinthine but, um, or la labyrinthine. You can actually say it either way. That's a, I have a hey, funny story that about that great uh, word that I'll tell you off uh, air. <laughs> it's scandalous. Not really. Yeah. Go on. As someone that doesn't know stuff, that works out <laughs> very well for me. <laughs> Give me options. So, yeah, I, I you know, I, I thought that. Um, and then also the fairy tale element, uh, visually sure. speaking, yeah. um, you know, I was delighted to find out that he was using things uh, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. 
um, and, uh, you know, the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and stuff like that. Um, and even hearkening back to a lot of old Grimm's fairy tales, um, you know, there, uh, there's a lot of scenes that actually take place in the black forest as she, you know, the, the w- girls running through the forest and stuff like that. So, um, has a lot of Grimm's fairy tale, old Disney, um, on acid kind of feel. And, uh, you know, I, I just kind of remembered this as a slasher flick, which, you know, uh, which is, you know, murdering ballet girls. But then, you know, as you start to peel back the layers of the onion, I started to really appreciate some of those influences a lot more uh, this time around. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like I was saying, so I famously love the color gels. They're all like cranked up to 11 on this. And then, like I said, that 4K transfer, the way that like the colors interact with each other, it was like I was seeing like brand new colors between colors, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, because before I never really had a uh, TV that supported HDR. Like my dumbass bought a 4K TV without realizing that it didn't support HDR. So I had to wait for that one to crap out. So my recent one that I got finally a year or two ago, HDR is like just blown up a whole new world for me. Right. And so it's like, wow, just the, the color spectrum that it's able to represent is insane to go back and watch some of these old films that have heavy use of gels or heavy use of color in their art direction and their set design and realize how much we weren't seeing just because, you know, the technology didn't exist to really communicate that to us. And so now it does. And it's really cool to see films like this where, Uh, You can really see that the filmmaker is specifically playing with color. And, you know, this in this case, it's it's like it's like color is about to be stolen by aliens from the planet Earth and everything's going to go black and white. (laughs) And he's like, we've got to use all the color we can while we can. It's going to go away forever. Right. Like (laughs) and the way he uses it is so stark. It's like it kind of reminds me. Remember how we said like uh, how like Wes Anderson films kind of is almost like he's playing with dolls with his actors. Like this is sort of like, I don't know, he's like cocaine Wes Anderson, right? He's like, he's got the dolls, but then it's all just like, let's throw some crazy colors over here and then throw the camera up on the roof. So it's really kind of over the top, but then also it, it like, you can't really call it restrained, but in its pacing, it's very sort of restrained, right? Like it doesn't like, it's not like coming at you with like all of these visuals and audio elements and then also like a crazy fast pacing. It's like really actually quite slowed down and it's taking its time and it sort of allows a lot of that art to breathe. And so it's interesting because on the one hand, it is sort of overstimulating, but then because it's presented almost as like a, a museum exhibit or a painting or something like that, it prevents it from being stimulus overload, right? Which is right. weird for a film like this when you're looking, when you're hearing goblin shrieks and like blues and yellows coming at you every which way. But again, just by 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 keeping that camera and he usually he also utilizes a lot of wide shots, you know, so he doesn't use a lot of close ups on faces. Um, so I do think that it, that that sort of detachment does allow some of that color and some of those visual elements to really breathe. And so we can appreciate them in a way where perhaps if the film was quicker quicker paced that is we might not be able to appreciate it as much sure yeah i mean uh i i i read something online about him being you know inspired uh by snow white and the seven dwarves and a lot of early disney work okay, and so sure. i took it upon myself to go back and watch some of those early clips and uh, from some of those okay, early nice. movies like sleeping beauty uh cinderella stuff like that um and uh, Disney was doing a lot of that too. Very, very hyper uh, saturated purples, blues, reds, um, and living in these, you know, this world of amazing color. Um, yeah. So, 
you know, I could definitely see where he got got influenced by a lot of that. It was really interesting to kind of go back and 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 see that that you know because another thing to to understand is that it wasn't just colored gels. They weren't just coloring this on set, but they also did post production in a Technicolor three strip process. So it's a common misconception mm. that they shot it this way, um, but actually uh, they shot it normal and finished it in post in what's called a Technicolor three strip process, which separates your reds, greens, and blues. So if you think mm. now in modern editing software, you're able to very easily slide reds, greens, blues, uh, magentas, you have color wheels and all the things you can do very manually on the fly on your computer. But back in the day when you're shooting on film, um, that was considered to be kind of a luxury that you have um, you know, total control over very individual colors and uh, can shift them, you know, and manipulate them as, as you know, you want uh, to get a certain mood or feel. So not only was he shooting with certain colors on set, but he was able to manipulate a lot of this in post as well. Wow, that's cool. I honestly didn't know that. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, as, you know, getting to the other giant part of that pie chart, right, is we have the audio and the audio is really going to be split into two different camps. The <laughs> first is going to be the sound effects. And then the second yes. is going to be that all time classic score from Goblin, which, it, you know, for a certain type of person like me and like you, it's going to really work uh, for other types of people, like perhaps our mothers. Uh, going to immediately turn you off right away. You're going to want nothing yeah. to do this. Right. So, but I really enjoyed the, the, the score because it's just like, oh, it's great. It's so prominent and it's got this, it, you know, the way that they sort of will bring parts back and just sort of let them drone on, drone on and on. It's like got this sort of hypnotic element to it. Right. And yes. were there any like particular parts of the score that stood out to you this time around that you noticed and maybe that you had um, before? Yeah, I mean, you know, so many shots in here, because they are so vibrant with color and everything, feel very much, um, it's very arty. And sure. uh, it feels yeah. very Italian. <laughs> Even the stained glass uh, that the girl busts through in the beginning and all of that. Um, it's very vibrant and all of that. Uh, but then there are moments where not a lot of is happening. And, um, you know, she's just walking through. Uh, the dance hall or examining something or, you know, uh, some things are stretched out and take a long time to happen. And the music I have in my notes, the music is doing a lot of heavy lifting in these moments. Yeah, because absolutely. You said earlier, you know, Argento is giving you time, you know, in these moments to really soak it in and, and drink up what he's offering you visually, um, both with, you know, not only with, with the cinematography, but also with the set design and, and the acting with the, where the actors are in the space and so forth. Um, you know, uh, like in the pool, for example, when the two girls are swimming, yeah. very calm scene, very little is going on. Um, they're just these two girls discussing, uh, you know, some various events, giving you a little backstory of what's up. Uh, but it's in these moments, these long, you know, moments um, that are that can be very still and slow paced that the music uh, and the diegetic sound effects and so forth um, are all really doing a lot of heavy lifting to get you through to the next big murder or witch happening of some kind. Yeah. What was interesting to me as I was listening to the score is just seeing the like assemblage of these various sonic materials and kind of how they fit together. You know, like one of the things about the music is you've got a lot of sound effects in the actual score, right? So a lot of the sound effects that you're hearing aren't even actually overlaid on, you know, on top of the score. They're actually embedded in part of the score and they were put sure. there by the members of Goblin themselves, you know, and that can look like, howling winds, various screams and wails. So just the fact that that's all sort of baked into the score 
makes it very interesting. I noticed this time that there's a lot of sort of utilizing Native American throat singing vocals and how that sort of plays at times. And then just the sort of stringy, shimmery guitar that's almost got this like, I don't know, Irish quality to it or something like that, or almost like a a classic Renaissance sort of feel to it. And again, you put all these things together and it gives just a very unique feeling. And then you've got that, you know, basically going in your ear holes and then you got all these crazy visuals going in your eye holes and... And it's got this, it makes for this really singular experience, like I've said. And so you can't really. Who needs a plot? Who needs a plot? (laughs) (laughs) Backstory. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it does all feel very supernatural, you know, and we've talked about films being like atmospheric and experiential before, you know, and that's very much what this film is. Like if you're going in and, you know, you're like, oh, I really want something that's going to work my gray matter out, you know, and uh, be a, you know, whodunit mystery with with constant twists and turns. You know, this is not the movie for you. This is not that movie at all, you know, but if you're like, hey, you know, I just want to sort of exist in this very unique sort of space and world for, you know, roughly a hundred minutes with the visuals and audio and everything that goes along with that. You've also got some really interesting sequences, too, just speaking of uh, the visuals, uh, which I know we're kind of onto the audio. But, you know, some of the things that they did as well just with just like the set pieces, you know, so they take uh, the, for example, the uh, scene where they, you know, it's after all the maggots have fallen from the floor. And so they all have to go sleep in the gym. And what could be just, you know, sort of a very rudimentary basic, okay, you know, all the girls go to sleep on cots. Instead, they have this like headmaster or headmistress rather, who goes behind the sheets that have been put up and she lays down and you see her silhouette and then you get the red lights. And then this is where the, the, yeah. And then this is where the sound effects come in. So you have that awesome score, but then getting back to the audio, the way that they just have that inhuman snore that she has, right. That heavy breathing where it's like wheezing, but animalistic and demonic and all this sort of stuff. So just this image of, you know, this this demon headmistress sleeping her silhouette up against a, a red light with the sounds of snoring is like really super effective and actually quite creepy. You know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how I sleep. That's how I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> I'm single, ladies. Let's do this. <laughs> Are you conjuring the dead in there, Ryan? Knock it off. Nope. <laughs> just how i snore bro it's just how i sleep I, I had no judgment against that woman i at this point she could have been a normal woman <laughs> I, am a I also do like team. the uh i also do like the way that the film sort of plays with the sound up front how you know the the goblin soundtrack is almost reflective of the evil in the environment itself it's almost like the aural equivalent of like the uh POV shots of the spirits from Evil Dead, right? Okay. Where, you know, we'll just, we'll see it floating around and zooming on those, you know, POV shots. And even though we don't see the demon, we kind of know that's the demon and it kind of informs us that there's these demonic creatures out there. This is almost doing the same thing with the music. And we see that in the opening scene where, you know, she's walking through the airport and, you know, we hear that goblin soundtrack, but it's like very muted, right? It's very flat. It's brought down very low and it's it's a little bit like warped. We can't quite hear it. And then as she's approaching the, the, the doors, there's these automatic doors. And as they open, like the score kind of like comes, you know, full spatial 3D audio, so to speak. Uh, and then when the doors close, you know, it goes back to being flat. So it's sort of letting you know that like 
you know, it's almost like uh, going into a, a certain, you know, exhibit at a theme park like at Disneyland or something. You know, you hear like the the Dumbo music at the Dumbo Elephants rides and it's like, oh, OK, this is this world, you know, part of this Suspiria world is it has like this specific Goblin soundtrack, you know, and when she steps out into the airport into this actual place, that's where yes. it really swells and picks up. And I like the way that right. they introduce that and play with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um what is left for a very small sliver of the pie, if you will, <laughs> is um, the, the plot itself and what sure. is really going on here. Now, um, obviously, uh, we have a murder that starts uh, that opens our film uh, very graphic, gory, you know, by especially by those standards, um, low budget or 1970s standards. Um, and. You know, then we're kind of left to wonder, well, what's really happening behind the scenes? Obviously, like you said, we're left with these trail of little hints and teases with the uh, old woman breathing behind the sheet and all of that. Um, also, we're seeing uh, certain things happen to our main character, uh, Susie, as she loses her place of residence, now has to move into the ballet school. Um, and we find out eventually that there are that this is a coven of witches, Mm -hmm. Um, and there is, uh, a, like a grand master, witch of sorts that existed many years ago. It is now using this coven of witches to garner power of sorts to keep her alive. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, in the realm of the living of sorts. So, um, but again, they're kind of playing fast and loose with a lot of this. You're, you're, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you're never really given a full explanation as to, the lore of who's in on it, who's not. Mm -hmm. For example, all the ballet dancers seem very confused. Are any of them supposed to be witches? I, that was one thing that I kept asking is like, because yeah. her, uh, her friend that she keeps going to, that is like filling her in and giving her nuggets along the way, um, that ends up in the barbed wire room, which who doesn't have a barbed wire room? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, she seems very concerned and, and confused about this. Obviously yeah. old gal stained glass in the beginning uh, didn't know shit about it. So are any sure. of the, is, is it your opinion that any of these girls are witches or are they just, is this ballet school like a side hustle uh, for the coven? <laughs> like why could they not have done the coven thing outside of the existence of the ballet school? Um, uh, you know, they're, they're yeah. the two older kind of women. The one, you know, uh, was it Madame Blanc or whatever? Uh, they're both very militaristic, hairs in a tight bun, um, very Frau Farbishna from Austin Powers-esque. Totally. <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, you know, they're running this ballet school with an iron fist. Um, dance, damn it. And, uh, you know, I, I was always kind of left like, so is it just the two of them that are that are in on the witchery or are any of the other surrounding cast in on it as well? What's your take on that? I believe that there are a majority of the students that are kind of in on it and that there is okay. a handful of them. Like, so kind of any of the like new semester students, right? Uh, because you just, you can't be there for very long and not figure out that some weird shit's going on. Like, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was when we all slept in the gym and then there was the evil demon creature that was sleeping behind us and the lights yeah. went red. Red right? flag like, number one. Yeah. Or the maggots <laughs> coming down from the roof for no reason. Yeah. No bigs. No bigs. So, you know, I imagine that maybe, you know, the uh, people that die or some of the girls that die are maybe like new students, you know, the, the fresh semester, they bring in a new batch of new me. girls and whoever 
lasts long enough, sort of, you know, ends up becoming part of the coven. Gets and indoctrinated and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Yeah. I think that's, know, so. that's what I was missing is like, I think that's all it would have taken too, is like maybe a little more of the inclusion of some of the other dancer girls. Sure. Um, into yeah. the, into, cause they seem so in the background and, um, not really important, uh, you know, as we move forward, they're just kind of there to make it look like a dance school. Really, we're just following Susie and her friend and then uh, the two um, women uh, headmasters, uh, mistresses of the uh, school until we get to our head witch moment at the very end to, to wrap the film up. But um, I would have liked to have seen a little more interaction or participation. Now, again, it's my understanding that Luca's, uh, old Luca G, uh, his version did incorporate some of that. Um, yeah. And it did not necessarily work. It just kind of overinflated the whole thing. So... You know, maybe there's something to be said for just going with the flow on this and uh, experiencing it and taking it in. Yeah, there was a couple of things that I read about the film or that I heard about the film anywhere somewhere along the way that would be interesting to know. And there's kind of a lot of rumors about what this film may or may not have been. And so it's difficult. Apparently, he uh, Argento also fought with the screenwriter. Apparently he didn't want to give the screenwriter any credit because he said it was all his stuff. And like the screenwriter had to fight for his credits to the point that for whatever reason, the screenwriter would go on to work with him again and Argento would refuse him credits on his work. So maybe he was just paying him cash and he was hard up for money or something. I don't really understand, you know, what the nature of that relationship would have been like that, but Imagine the screenplay being the thing that everything everybody was fighting over in this. <laughs> no, I want That's the credit. No, the credit. I want the credit. Okay, Tell you it. what, bro. Go ahead and have it. You got this. Yep. One. No yeah. problem. I, I would have said, yeah, it's all him. Those uh, yeah. those eye bleeding visuals and that goblin score—that's me. But you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so, Johnny Two Witches over here—he could have the screenplay credit. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently, in the uh, the initial plans called for a big third act climax that never really came to fruition, which I could definitely oh, see because it does feel like it just sort of ends and probably it does budgetary reasons have to do with both of those. But apparently the film was originally conceived rumor has it with a big dance performance of all of the other ballet oh, dancers wow. at the end. And it would sort of be that thing where it was like intercut with the headmistress being found, but then the performance is going on and then the, you know, building is crashing down and exploding as the performers are still trying to carry on. And I think that would have been a really interesting third climax, third act climax, rather, that it's unfortunate we really didn't get to see that if it does actually exist in paper form or in ideation form. Sure. Now, the other that's not necessarily a rumor and is just a thing that happened and is also a result of why the film is what it is, though you certainly could argue and make a case that the film and screenplay should have been taken back and adjusted for this, which is that when Argento originally conceived this film, it apparently featured all of the dancers were much younger. So instead of being late teens, they were all like 12 and 13 year old kids, like preteen kids at this ballet academy. So it was supposed to be much younger. And that's a large part of the reason why we don't necessarily see them be as involved as they could have been because Argento thought he was going to get kids, but knew that he could not be overly sadistic with them. Right. Like the studio wasn't going to allow that much. He certainly couldn't have 12 or 13 year olds getting into like romantic entanglements, which is why we don't see any elements of that going on. And so, you know, he kind of had to keep those characters at arm's distance 
even yeah. in spite of that, the studio came through and was like, ha, nobody, we're not going to make a film this violent and put a bunch of 12 and 13 year olds. You're absolutely yeah. nuts. Yeah. Till Evil Dead Rise says, hold my beer, Dario Argento. <laughs> Well, and, and uh, I forget his, his following film. I forget if it was Phenomena or if it's a different film, but his follow up film did feature a, a, like a 13 year old Jennifer Connelly, I believe. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, and, and apparently that was the sort of making it up to him because Suspiria ended up making a lot of money. Dude, get this. I don't making know if you read it up to him. OK, <laughs> you can kill a kid. You can kill a kid. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But dude, did you see that? um the the that I think it was Fox that financed it was so ashamed of the film that they came up with an entirely new distribution company so that they could release no. the film not no, under their I did own not see name. This. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that was super <laughs> funny, man. So um, I'll have to see if I can find the name of the company. But uh, yeah, they straight came up with like this entire it was like international distribution or something like that. It was like a total yeah. like generic name, you know. They wanted um, nothing to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then and then it ended up making money. And we know that at the end of the day, that's all the studios really care about. So they were like, sorry, Dario, here's your kid. <laughs> I did see that um, about the kid thing. I did see that. And uh, even so far as to kind of play it down a little bit, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but all the doorknobs are at face level. Um, in oh, the film, wow. it's very, very strange from a set design standpoint, but as she's going into different rooms and stuff, uh, it's all the doorknobs and everything are right around her chin. Um, he kind of, uh, had to, you know, make the, the set, uh, a little bigger just to make them feel a little smaller and everything and, and, dumb, yeah. you know, young them up a little bit. I thought that was an interesting choice from the set deck. Dude, uh, he, standpoint. uh, <laughs> he reversed John Wayne it. <laughs> right. Yeah. For anyone, for anyone watching that doesn't know, uh, for the John Wayne pictures, he was a, he was a shorter guy. Uh, so they used to uh, paint. They used to take the doors and make them smaller, so that as he passed through them, he would look bigger. So yes. we talk about a reverse John Wayne in this case, going the other way. These doors are too big, Pilgrim. <laughs> make these doors smaller, Pilgrim. <laughs> Yeah, I also don't know if you ever <laughs> thought about this, but, you know, we're we're both big Quentin Tarantino fans. Uh, Robert Rodriguez, to a lesser extent for myself, I know he's your he's your guy to a degree. But I, I have to say that, like, as I was watching this film, I was reminded so many times of Edgar Wright's trailer. Don't that he did for the Grindhouse double yes. feature. Fantastic. <laughs> Where it's like, there's not really any plot. It's just like, don't go there. Now don't, don't. go there. Things are going to happen. Why? I don't know. Cause you're going forward. Why not? <laughs> well, and that brings me to my next point, which is what kind of witchery is really happening here? We don't really get yeah. a, a, exposed to, because, you know, throughout cinema history, um, we have been exposed to different kinds of witches. There is the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, there are, you know, occult manipulation kind of witches. There are the natural, you know, nature-loving uh, Wiccan-style witches mm -hmm. that meet in the forest and, you know, get all into nature and, and you know, harness those spirits. You know, Stevie Nicks style and all of that. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the witch uh, from old boy Eggers. So, you know, I, I never really quite understood what they were doing there other than just murdering kids, but to what end? <laughs> like, you know, I know they have to keep old, old, old lady, uh, you know, you know, the, the, OG witch alive, but, yeah. um, other than that, we don't really see them doing any kind of witchcraft or witchery. Um, sure. just, 
you know, uh, we see them, you know, take over the dog or manipulate the dog to murder the dude in King Square and all of that. But yeah, it was very, very strange to me. I just wish I had a little more at stake, um, you know, to build up the stakes a little bit, to know what they were up to, what they were trying to get. There was, you know, uh, all the way down to the fact that there was really no MacGuffin. You know, that nobody's really after anything when you really yeah, break it down exactly. and thinking about it from a plot standpoint. Um, so when you remove that, other than just uh, Susie trying to stay alive in the midst of all these, you know, crazy happenstances, um, you know, I, I don't really know. Uh, and because you don't really have a central villain, like, I don't really know that there was a MacGuffin in like Friday the 13th, for example. Um, sure. But you did have at least a central character that you're following along that, that you know. Uh, the the object is just to stay away from from Jason or Freddie or Michael Myers or whoever it is. But in this case, you don't even have that. It's just stuff yeah. kind of happening behind the scenes. It's more of a a whodunit. Now, I will add to that that um, you know Argento did get his start in Giallo films, um, which sure. were more of a murder mystery genre. Uh, Giallo yeah. in Italian, I believe, means yellow. Um, so the the film genre is named after. Uh, the murder mystery novels or, or novellas that were coming in yellow um, paperback novels, the yellow faced novels okay. with a scary picture on the front and all of that. So if you saw sure. like a yellow book with like a little haunting uh, Hardy Boys style uh, picture on the front, um, those are giallo books and they're like murder mysteries or whatever, um, whodunits. And even The Bird with a Crystal Plumage, his first film was a giallo film. So, um, you know, uh, I can see where this kind of is his foray into horror and suspense, but still kind of, you know, toe tapping into that, you know, uh, whodunit murder mystery kind of style. Um, so I, I get why, but I, I would have liked a little more explanation on what was going on. Now we do get all our explanation all at once from a big dump in the middle of the film, which was kind of uh, <laughs> odd and awkward from the psychiatrist. And he's like, sit down, Susie, yeah. let's have a talk. Um, and <laughs> I guess that guy didn't know his lines. They were using like cue cards off the camera and stuff. They had him for like a few hours. And he Dude, just you know, this, do you know who that was? That psychiatrist? No. That was no, Udo Kier. Who? I don't, Udo Kier? Look him up. You'll notice. He plays like uh, the villain in a lot of movies. Uh, okay. Like, like, yeah, just, just, Anyone watching, if you don't know who Udo Kier is, look it up right now. U-D-O-K-I-E-R. You're going to be like, oh, that guy. Yeah. I remember him from blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, man. Yeah, I know. I I did not notice him. That's crazy. Uh, But um, anyways, uh, that was, you know, these are kind of just the the couple of little things like you mentioned at the start of the show that stood out to me that that I hadn't really paid much attention to uh, in previous viewings. Yeah, definitely, man. I kind of put it in the same category as like the lighthouse where okay. you don't really ever know the backstory of those two dudes or what they're up to or what's going on with the big tentacle or the lights or the, you know, the sure, Triton, yeah. you know, Hark stuff. Sometimes you just are along for the ride. Does, you know, what was, how much of that was real, not real. What was really going on there? What was the MacGuffin? Um, you know, th- that movie kind of falls in a very similar way in a lot of these categories as well. But sure. if you, just release yourself to go along for the ride and enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I would say both, you know, that and this are masterpieces in their own right. Um, they just do have flaws you, you yeah. know, plot wise. They're not standard in their three act structure and all their character arcs and all that. You're not going to get that from the lighthouse or Suspiria. 
Yeah, definitely. Now, here's the thing. I will pitch you a take here and uh, you can take it or leave it. <laughs> oh boy. But either way. So <laughs> <laughs> so check this out. Right. So uh, so uh, Dario Argento was kind of like a known, like not necessarily show- socialist, but certainly like very critical of like capitalism, Western culture, tra- you know, et cetera. And so. As I was watching this film, like a kind of the the sort of take came to me because, OK, it's a lot of symbolism, right? Like we're not really like sitting here saying, OK, you know, this is this and the plot line goes here, there and everywhere. Right. It's a lot of just sort of ideas that sort of exist to fill in these spaces and these characters. And, okay. and I do think that the main central sort of statement being made here about the headmistress and the school and everything is I do think it's a sort of like statement on capitalism, right? Because people that are uh, negative, the people that are critical of capitalism. Uh, and then when you get to a certain point, it's one of those ideas is that, you know, you're basically just existing at a certain point to hoard money and to hoard power and you're not really doing anything with it. You reach this sort of critical mass where the whole point is to just gain more money and more power in this sort of little cyclical catch 22. Right. And so there's this idea that that's pretty much what the headmistress exists for is she's bringing in the students because a it's enhancing her power ultimately by growing her coven. And you could argue that, you know, they're feeding off her energy and B we actually do see that she is making money off of these students, right? She brings in Susie, the protagonist right up front and she's like, Oh, you don't have lodging. It's okay. We got something for you. There's this room, $200 a week. We'll start taking it out of your account. Don't worry. It's all taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. And then I remember somewhere reading about that, Part of the idea that the reason that like the never the cops never get called because we never see any sort of police show up. There's the one sort of awkward scene where the sort of like, what is it? The blind investigator shows up and he just kind of like happens to be there and then his dog ends up killing him. And that's sort of an effective sequence. Right. But there's this idea that the reason the cops never get called is because she has them in her pocket as well. So that's a take that works. It doesn't necessarily mean that was his specific intent. But if you wanted to read that in there, like I'd buy that. I'd buy that for a dollar. You know what I call that, Jason? Suspiriagonomics. Suspiriagonomics. Hey, (laughs) they can't all be winners, buddy. They can't all be winners. (laughs) You are definitely proving that right now, sir. Hello. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. It's in there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the the very last tiny little sliver, you've got the acting, right? It's, you know, it's not bad. It's not great. It's very acceptable. I do think that the main actress, uh, Jessica Harper, that she did carry a very specific energy that played really well for her character. It was something where if you compared it to a modern actress, it might be that same like Mary Elizabeth Winstead kind of energy where it's like a little detached, but also kind of engaged and, you know, there's an intellect there, but it's withdrawn. And so all of that I thought worked very well for her character. I also thought that the supporting characters all really, you know, gave it their all and they sort of relished those, you know, evil, you know, headmistress and uh, the, the one girl, Bianca, who's like calling them snakes and stuff. And, you know, they sort of sure. went all in on a lot of that and brought the necessary energy that contradicted 
our protagonists almost I lack think it of fits energy, the film. right? It fits, yeah. you know, their acting style, style very much falls in place and in line with the score, with the vibrant colors, with everything. It's very tuned up, and uh, I think it, it fits in line with everything. It, it felt in place. I, I never was taken out of it by the acting. Correct, yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. So we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Any final thoughts on the film, Ryan? I, I, did, say, I did think that the conclusion of the film... Um, was satisfactory. If there was another bigger, okay. broader one, I would love to have seen his version of that, of course. But um, I thought that with her going in, you know, seeing the old old witch lady and like, you know, getting her and then, you know, the, her friend is coming out with the things in her eye, the needle pins in her eyes and the slit, and the, you know, she's all cut up and stuff. I thought it was fun. It was a fun ending. And then the whole house starts to shake and rattle and come apart at the seams. Um, you know, I, I thought it was a... Uh, a good suitable ending. And then, you know, she kind of walks away laughing or whatever. And a very, um, it reminded me of the ending of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, where the woman's kind of, you know, driving away in the bed of the pickup truck, kind of laughing after that traumatic experience or whatever, you know, kind of just shaking sure, yeah. up in shock, uh, yeah. if you will. So, Midsommar did the um, same thing. Yes, Florence correct. Pugh's character at the end. Yeah, yeah. Very, very similar type deal. So, um, yeah, I thought that uh, this was a very suitable, satisfactory ending. Absolutely. I agree with that. We will go ahead and wrap up with our three adjectives and star ratings. First, do want to remind you, if you haven't yet, please do like this video helps us out and make sure to subscribe to our channel as well. If you agreed or disagreed with any of our points on this review, we would love to hear from you. Let us know in the comments below. Now, uh, Ryan, give us a quick description of three adjectives before you give us what they are for the audience. Well, if you just saw this film and you were talking to somebody that had not seen this film, what are three creative ways, um, very, very briefly in a word or two, or, or a very brief phrase that you could do, that you would use to describe it? Uh, or what is some colorful language that you would use to describe it? And I'll give you an example. Uh, mine uh, would be experiential. Uh, for all the nice. reasons that we just said, um, this is a movie meant to be experienced, not really picked apart. Plot wise, um, you know, you got the goblin score, the vibrant colors and all these great, great, amazing things that are happening all around you. Um, just sit back and enjoy it. Let it wash over you. Um, I'm glad you compared it to House earlier or Houseu, um, because uh, that, that's very much the same way. Like, what's that banana man doing? Who fucking cares? It's awesome. <laughs> it's just not what this film's it. about. <laughs> that's not what this film's about. Right. Just go and enjoy it. Uh, my next one is vibrant uh, because it is. Uh, that kind of speaks for itself. And my last one is dark Disney. Um, because I thought that was a new take on it that I never heard before that really stood out to me that this was a, a, you know, very dark horror version of a Disney slash Grimm's fairy tale. And, uh, it was fun to kind of look at it through that lens. Um, how about you, buddy? Nice. Yeah. Dark Disney reminds me of an old LP song called dead Disney, which if you haven't okay. heard, go ahead and check it out. It's from his like solo days, <laughs> but yeah, no. So for my three adjectives, the first one I have is hypnotic. The, whether you're talking about just the the visuals that you can't stop watching, uh, the droning, repetitive nature of a lot of the aural elements that we're exposed to. I've got ethereal, right? This whole thing exists in this sort of alternate dimension of supernatural time and space where none of this stuff could really be happening, but it's exactly why we're here. But whereas, you know, a traditional horror might focus on the violence, this sort of focused a lot more on mood and atmosphere. And then sensory overload for all the reasons that we just spent the last 40 minutes or so talking about. So all of this combining for a star rating for me of four and a half out of five stars. Really love this movie. Going to go ahead and uh, acknowledge that, you know, some of the story elements don't work. Just give it a little bit of a chip for that. But four and a half out of five stars. 
Ryan, what do you got, buddy? I'm giving this one four stars. Uh, okay. This one is a really, really good film. It's a fun watch. Not perfect. There are better ones out there. But um, yeah, it's it's in the upper tier of those, you know, of its era and its genre. Yeah. Absolutely. So for everyone watching, be sure to visit esotericcinema.com for more content, as well as to contact either Ryan or myself directly. For Esoterica Cinema, I'm Jason Peters. He's Ryan Siebold. Enjoy the movies.